During a trip to Nigeria this week, Ban met with staff that survived the bombing by the Boko Haram militant group, Sayoban Garside reports. At a ceremony on Monday commemorating the 2011 bombing, the UN Secretary General paid tribute to the 23 people who died as he laid a wreath at the United Nations House in the Nigerian capital. UN spokesperson Vanina Mastrachi said his visit was part of a series of meetings the Secretary General held with Nigeria's president, state governors and business leaders on the new Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, and other matters. Ms. Mastrachi said they also discussed the violent extremism in the country's northeast. Mr. Ban also visited children at a health centre and a school. Judgment against eight former South African police officers accused of murdering Mozambican taxi driver Mido Masia is expected to be handed down in the High Court in the capital, Pretoria. Masia died after being dragged behind a police van in full view of the community. His body was found in the local police holding cells. All eight men have pleaded not guilty. Session Naidu reports. The state closed its case last week, where prosecutor Charles Amnisi told the court that handcuffing Masia to the back of a police van and dragging him for about 200 meters was wrong. Amnisi told the court that none of the officers had done anything to correct their actions on the day. Earlier this month, the court heard that Masia died from head and chest injuries. He had been bleeding from the brain and both his lungs were full of blood. He was found dead in a holding cell on the 26th of February 2013 with his arms arms above his head wearing only his socks, underwear and t-shirt. A new agreement between the Republic of Korea and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea to reduce tension on the Korean Peninsula has been welcomed by the UN Secretary General. Ban Ki-moon expressed hope that the two nations' promise to hold a regular dialogue would lead to the resumption of talks on the nuclear issue. Ban stressed the importance of fully implementing the agreement. The Secretary General also strongly encouraged permitting humanitarian steps such as reuniting separated families on a regular basis without preconditions. According to media reports, a tense standoff has prevailed since the country's exchange artillery fire last Thursday. And finally, a safari guide has been mauled to death by a lion in the same park in Zimbabwe where Cecil the lion was killed in an illegal hunt last month. Park authorities say 40-year-old Quinn Swales was killed in Hwangwe National Park. He was leading a group of tourists on a photographic safari when the male lion unexpectedly charged. According to a statement, Wales did everything he could to protect his guests. Cecil the lion's death caused a global outrage, reviving questions about big game hunting and its sustainability in Africa. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Jalani. It is exactly 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Tuesday, August the 25th, the 237th day of 2015, with 128 days left in the year. Our top story, Lesotho's Prime Minister, Pagadi Tamusisidi, has signed a memorandum of understanding with exiled opposition leader and former Prime Minister, Tom Tabane, to facilitate 
facilitate his return. Tabane and two other opposition leaders, members of the army and lawyers fled the country, saying they feared for their lives in May. A fortnight later, former army commander Maparangwe Mahau was killed, prompting SADC to establish a commission of inquiry. The government has now also regazetted the terms of reference of that commission following a resolution of the recent SADC summit in Khaburoni, Botswana. Ntakwana Ngatane reports from Maseru. It is three months since Lesotho's former Prime Minister Tom Tabane left the country. Initially, government said while it was concerned, it believed Tabane was playing antiques to make the country look more unstable than it was. Related or not, the killing of former Commander Maparangwe Mahau gave weight to Tabane's concerns. The government was forced to call on Sadak to assist with investigators and pathologists. Now the Prime Minister and the opposition leader have agreed for him to return. Prime Minister Pagadita Musisidi. He says the government will give Mr. Tabani police security. He says the government will give Mr. Tabani a government house where he will have police security as he initially requested around the clock. Debate has been raging in Lesotho on why the country was not made to chair the Sadak Ogad for Politics, Defense and Security at the recent summit in Botswana. On this, Musisidi says he requested Sadak to pass Lesotho again to enable the country to focus on constitutional and security reforms. Where the bloc didn't agree with this government, the opposition and the facilitator, however, is on allowing them to change the terms of reference of the Commission of Inquiry into the death of former Army Commander Maaparangwe Mahau. The initial gazetted terms of reference covered events from as far back as July 2012. Musisidi says they had hoped this would provide a better understanding and provide lasting solutions for Lesotho. He says Sadak decided that Lesotho should go back to the original terms of reference and he is pleased to announce that the amended gazette has now been published. The other thorny issue is investigations of alleged mutiny and arrest and detention of soldiers. Musisidi says Sadak agreed with the government to allow a court-martial to proceed because government or Sadak intervention there were overtaken by events as the arrested soldiers have instituted legal proceedings to be heard in court. He says the initial Sadak resolution is in conflict with the laws of Lesotho on how long a person can be detained before they appear in court. He says the suspects have instituted legal proceedings to be heard in court and Sadak and government intervention have been overtaken by events. The original and now gazetted terms of reference are in 15 clauses and cover four main issues, investigations into alleged mutiny in the Lesotho Defense Force and claims that members of the opposition are being killed, the involvement of Maparangwe Mahau in the alleged mutiny, claims that he resisted arrest, and circumstances surrounding his death, the legality of appointment of Mahau and his demotion, and the removal and reappointment of Lieutenant General Tadika Mudi, and claims that it has caused divisions within the army. Amtakwa Nangatan in Maseru, Lesotho.
The United Nations Security Council has been urged to do everything in its power to give sexual and gender minorities safe havens during times of conflict. That was the message delivered by two gay men who had fled persecution by the Islamic State group or ISIL in Syria and Iraq. The closed-door meeting hosted by the United States and Chile was the first time in the UN's 70-year history that the Council met specifically on the questions of LGBT rights. Shown Bryce Peace reports. ISIL has claimed responsibility for at least 30 executions for sodomy, often posting images or videos online of men being thrown from buildings or stoned to death for being gay. U.S. Ambassador Samantha Power immediately pointed out that the targeting of LGBT people went far beyond the actions of ISIL. When we're talking about a particular country, we often, each of us, talk about human rights or the crisis, let's say, uh, uh, faced by women and girls in conflict. We need to look and make sure our embassies and the United Nations are looking to see also how LGBT persons are being treated in particular conflict areas. The informal meeting of the council was closed to protect the identity of the Iraqi gay man who addressed member states via video link from an undisclosed location in the Middle East. But Syrian refugee Subi Nahas told council of his escape first to Lebanon and Turkey last year, finally being resettled in the United States as an LGBT refugee. He explained it was only a matter of time before ISIL sniffed him out and executed him and was now giving voice to the voiceless. The message that we want to deliver is that the, the community in the Middle East that is standing, now is standing up and they, they, that we want to push back, we want our rights to be, we want our voices to be heard, we want our rights to be acknowledged and that we, we will prevail at the end. And we wanted to put a, a, step, a stepping stone so can others can follow our, our lead. Naha says he was hoping to deliver a message to UN member states that LGBT people were not merely a term invented by the West. To prove that LGBT is not just a terminology invented by the West itself, but there is an LGBT community in the Middle East and in Africa, and they stand together and they want their right too. Executive Director of the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission, Jessica Stern, who also addressed the closed-door session, later explained that while issues of sexual abuse of women and the targeting of other minorities is well documented, the experience of the LGBT community in times of war is often largely underreported or neglected. I very much believe that attention by the Security Council not only helps send a message from the UN and its members, but it also fills a gap in the discourse about human rights violations. And that discourse is where LGBTI people are often the most vulnerable. Council members Chad and Angola were absent from the meeting, while China, Russia and Nigeria did not speak. When Jessica Stern was asked what next steps she expected from the Security Council on this issue, she was cautious. So today a door is opened and now we have to find out what happens if we walk through that door. Baby steps one imagines on an issue that continues to sharply divide UN member states, especially within Africa and the Middle East. I'm Sherman Bryspees in New York. 
It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in the year 2000. The Zimbabwe government names another 509 white-owned farms it plans to confiscate for redistribution to landless blacks, bringing to 1,542 the number it has targeted under a hastened land seizure program. And that was today in the year 2000. Across the globe, the continent, and the entire country, every second, there's always a breaking story. SABC News is your reliable eye, ear, and information system in bringing you events as they happen. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. SABC News, Africa's news leader. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. There's no substitute for seeing the humanitarian needs of people firsthand. According to the top UN relief official Stephen O'Brien, he began his work as Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs just a couple of months ago and has already traveled to a number of conflict zones in locations such as Iraq, South Sudan and Yemen. O'Brien, who has more than 20 years of experience in international development and public health, stressed the importance of meeting the people who may even be part of the protagonists in conflict. Ari Gaitanis from UN Radio caught up with him and began by asking him to describe what he has done in the job so far. So far I've managed to go to uh, Iraq, up into the Kurdistan region, also into Lebanon. Uh, I've been to South Sudan uh, where I was able to travel up into Bentu uh, and into the host communities of Nial. In Bentu there was a Uh, protection of civilians camp, which I was able to see where the UN has done really outstanding work and many thousands of lives have been saved uh, absolutely clearly because of what the UN has done. And of course, the UN works alongside and with many, many partners, uh, both in the uh, charitable sector, uh, particularly local uh, NGOs, as well as the international NGOs who all uh, come together to do this very, very important work. I'm going to further countries uh, very shortly. Uh, We have a number of really big humanitarian crises around the world, namely Syria, Iraq, uh, South Sudan and Yemen. So in the past eight, nine weeks, you've been airborne a lot of it. You've hit the ground flying, as some would say. So how much time have you spent actually at headquarters, you know, versus actually being out there in the field? Well, I haven't actually counted the days, but I think it must be 14 or 15 days. Uh, It's been a a pretty much intense uh, Uh, immersion uh, in these first few weeks, as anybody might expect. Uh, Of course, the work has got to be done, but most importantly, it's getting the chance to meet all the people who are contributing within what is a remarkable uh, team approach. Uh, Humanitarian work is extremely complex. It's very, very demanding. It, it of course, is extremely urgent at all times and is normally in the context of an emergency. Uh, So you need people with great experience who know what to do first time, each time, uh, and to make sure that we have the right people in place as best we can. On a more personal note, what impact does it have 
for a senior official to go to the field to see up front, up close, exactly you know, the, the needs of the people most in need, I guess you could say? Well, actually, there is no substitute for seeing it for yourself. Uh, in our work, of course, uh, the traditional phrase is to say seeing is believing. Well, actually, I already do believe that there is masses of humanitarian need in our world, and we are all very sensitized, I think, as global citizens, particularly working under international humanitarian law and the principles that govern that about our impartiality and our need to make sure that we really do focus on where needs and vulnerabilities are, however they arise, whoever uh, they are, and however uh, we have the chance to be able to try and meet that. The World Humanitarian Summit in May, Istanbul next year. What's it about? Why is it important? And what do you hope to see come out of it? Well, I see it as a most fantastic opportunity. Uh, there is a date, the 23rd and the 24th of May uh, 2016 in Istanbul, which in itself is a remarkably totemic place where East and West, North and South all meet. And that will be uh, when the uh, world comes together to reaffirm and to restate its determination to be able to deliver the best of humanity to its fellow men and women. And the World Humanitarian Summit, uh, I think, is this tremendous opportunity to re-inspire a whole new generation to be engaged, uh, both through the UN and the whole of the humanitarian family, in tremendous humanitarian uh, work. And that was Stephen O'Brien, Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, speaking to Ari Gaitanis from UN Radio. It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Zimbabwe has received a grant of close to 40 million rand from the African Development Bank to fund Parliament and the Auditor General's Office to improve transparency and accountability in the public sector. The grant signed over in a ceremony held yesterday is part of a 1.4 billion rand agreement targeting a number of projects including infrastructure rehabilitation, water and sanitation. Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa said lack of transparency and poor corporate governance has scared off foreign investment. Shinganyoka reports. The African Development Bank and Zimbabwe's Minister of Finance on Monday signed a grant that will improve the Auditor General and Parliament's oversight of public institutions. 20 million rand will be directed to strengthening the oversight role of Parliament, while 8 million rands will be used to capacitate the Auditor General's office to improve accountability in the public sector, explains the ADB's country representative, Mateos Magala. Uh, the same objectives. Uh, to strengthen uh, you know, the institution of accountability and transparency. We are confident we are working with a serious government because it has committed itself. It's not because of noise uh, outside, but they understood that uh, being accountable to taxpayers is critical for the development <coughs> of uh, uh, Zimbabwe. Corruption has hampered Zimbabwe's development. The country was ranked 156 out of 175 countries in Transparency International's 2014 Global Corruption Perception Index. A ranking transparency said was a sign of widespread bribery, lack of punishment for corruption and poor governance in public institutions. The government has been struggling to find investors for loss-making state companies, a significant number of which have not submitted audited reports in years. In its latest report, 
report, the Auditor General says 2.4 billion rand in public funds was lost in 2014 due to bad corporate governance. Zimbabwe's Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa has said more needs to be done to strengthen accountability. There is a lot of interest generated in those reports, but the greater interest is what is government doing about it? If there's been anomalies, I'm thinking that we should set up a unit within the Ministry of Finance and Economic Development to follow up on those reports so that as government we are seen to be serious when anomalies are brought to our attention. The project will be implemented over three years, running through to December 2018. I'm in Harare. South Africa's Deputy President Sil Ramaphosa has had to allay fears in the Japanese business sector over South Africa's energy crisis and labor market instability. Ramaphosa is on an official visit to the world's third largest economy to urge them to invest in the country. He is in Tokyo with a high-powered government and business delegation. They spent the day meeting with captains of industry to discuss ways to improve existing economic ties. Amos Pajo has more. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa hit the ground running, holding meetings with Japanese leaders of industry. As he told the business sector that South Africa is open for business, he also had to address some of their concerns. The Japanese businesses that we've met here are willing to come and invest in South Africa. They raised questions Uh, about our energy challenges, about our labor market issues, and we gave them good answers even about BEE. We gave them good answers and they are satisfied with what we were able to articulate to them. The meeting comes as the rent continued to tumble following world market volatility. South Africa is looking to increase trade with the world's third largest economy. Currently, there are 280 Japanese companies operating in South Africa and 13 South African companies in Japan. And for South African business people like Siyakuza, this visit could not have come at a better time. Collaboration between Japan, which is a country that is seeking economic growth through accessing new markets that we have, and we as South African entrepreneurs wanting to take our businesses to the next level through beneficiation. And so this is a great platform for us to engage that. For Japanese business... Pretoria remains a gateway to the rest of the continent. Japanese businessman Masahiro Ikeno. Uh, South Africa is a very open and very fair market. So maybe uh, it's a very good advantage for us to work together with South Africa, then uh, expanding to the uh, African continent. Ramaphosa also visited the National Museum of Imaging Science and Innovation, Maraikan, where he got first-hand experience into the vast Japanese expertise and innovation technologies in robotics, astronomy, maritime and motoring. He was also taken for a spin in an electric car when he stopped over at manufacturer Toyota's showroom. Local students have benefited from South Africa's binational relations with Japan with an exchange program that have seen some travel to the country to gain new skills. I am studying economics, master's in economics, uh, and I'm currently doing internship in Tokyo, and I'm looking forward to coming back home after all this uh, uh, knowledge that I'm gaining here and contribute back to our uh, economy. Um, I'm studying my master's in marine science and technology and will be coming back home soon to uh, make sure that all the skills that I gained in Japan are well implemented back home.
I'm studying geotechnical engineering and I'm very grateful for the opportunities that have been given and I'm looking forward to come back to South Africa and implement all the skills that I've learned. Ramaphosa earlier paid a courtesy call to Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and on Tuesday he will hold discussions with Japanese ambassador to the United Nations Yasuhi Akashi on the peace consolidation efforts in Sri Lanka. Ramaphosa has met the Sri Lankans on several occasions since President Jacob Zuma appointed him as special envoy on Sri Lanka. I'm Amos Paro in Tokyo, Japan. Hello and listen carefully to the good news I have. On Saturday, the 29th of August, Channel Africa, together with Drakensberg Promotions, are bringing you the Muretele Park concert live from South Africa's capital city, Pretoria. Under the theme, We Are Africa. This year's concert celebrates South Africa's coming of age and includes the woo-zooing African music and spans the continent with young and old artists from local star Kaifa Semenya and Lesotho's Budaza to more modern acts like Oliver Mutukudzi and younger acts like award-winning a cappella sensation The Soil. There you have it. Join Channel Africa and Drakensberg Promotions for the Sounds of Africa from 1800 to 2000 Central African time on Saturday, the 29th of August. Don't miss the musical event of the year. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka. South African NGOs, a treatment action campaign and the Sanke Gender Justice Network say the mechanism through which vulnerable members of society can hold large corporates to account for their failures is through a class action. The organizations have brought an application before the High Court in Johannesburg to be admitted as friends of the court in a class action lawsuit against mining companies. The main case is being brought by former mine workers seeking compensation from gold mining companies after contracting silicosis due to prolonged exposure to dust particles while working in mines. Tapapakane reports. The TAC and Sonke presented affidavits from experts on a study which sought to outline the socio-economic conditions of former mine workers in the Eastern Cape and the impact on their families. The organization says after contracting silicosis, Many are left too poor and too sick and therefore are unable to access courts to seek redress. They are then left in the care of their spouses who themselves are forced to forego the chances to seek employment. John Stevens is from NGO Section 27 and is the attorney for Sonke and TAC. And this exacerbates already existing inequalities between men and women and especially rural women and um and further entrenches cycles of poverty in rural communities. Sonke and TAC want to be admitted to participate in a court hearing next month. The case is brought by former mine workers who've contracted silicosis and tuberculosis due to prolonged exposure to dust particles while working in the gold mining industry. About 56 mining companies are respondents in the matter. In that case, 
The court will decide whether or not the mine workers can proceed in a class action lawsuit against the mining companies. Stevens says Sonk and TAC will argue how poor and vulnerable people struggle to vindicate their rights and how they should be given an opportunity to do so through a class action lawsuit. He says they want to bring in new legal arguments and new evidence to the main case in October. We also bring in evidence about international experience and difficulties in holding dominant and powerful corporations to account, as well as international law emphasizing the need for these corporations to be held to account and for people who are vulnerable to be able to vindicate their rights. Representing the gold mining industry in court was Harmony Gold, Anglo Gold and Goldfields. Lawyer for Goldfields, Willem van der Linde, says the two NGOs have not spelled out precisely what it is that they intend bringing before the court to help it in reaching its decision on whether or not to grant mine workers permission to sue the mining companies. He says merely relying on affidavits from experts is not good enough. Harmony Gold Mines legal representative Alfred Cochre says if the organizations are admitted into the main case as friends of the court, this will have serious cost implications not only for his client but for the court as well due to the time it will take to deal with additional evidence. The matter continues on Tuesday. Our headlines up next with Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Making headlines, Lesotho Prime Minister Pakadita Musisidi has signed a memorandum of understanding with exiled opposition leader and former Prime Minister Tom Tabani to facilitate his return. Judgment against eight former South African police officers accused of murdering Mozambican taxi driver Mido Masia is expected to be handed down in the High Court in the capital, Pretoria. And finally, a new agreement between the Republic of Korea and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea to reduce tension on the Korean Peninsula has been welcomed by the UN Secretary General. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Now, South Africa's currency has fallen to an all-time low against the U.S. dollar as rising concerns about waning growth in China hit commodity-linked currencies. The weaker rand is likely to fuel inflation in the face of South Africa's worst power crisis in seven years. It briefly hit a rate of 14 to the dollar amid concerns about the strength of the Chinese economy. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Davi Ruot, Chief Economist at the Efficient Group. Good morning, Davi, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Uh, good morning to you. Thank you for the invite. Now, Davi, reports suggest that the South African rand has been hit by the slowdown in growth in China. Can you explain this? Yeah, but just a correction. Actually, the rand traded at 14.07 to the US dollar on Sunday, so that was indeed an all-time record low. Well, yes, many analysts are saying what is happening at the moment in the South African currency has to do with what is happening in China, and that is partly correct. And the reason why I say it is partly correct is simply because the world or the global financial markets at the moment are very, very volatile. There are a number of, of imbalances globally. It's not only in China, it's in Europe. We know about the Greeks as an example. 
certainly in the United States, and certainly in China as well. And I think what happened in China, the devaluation of the currency, as well as the correction of the equity markets recently, was only a trigger that led to the global financial markets uh, realigning itself. And that, of course, impacted on the South African economy. China is particularly important to South Africa uh, because China used to be a huge importer of commodities, and South Africa is a major exporter of commodities. And since the Chinese do not import that much commodities anymore, uh, the impact of that is simply uh, being felt on the South African currency, the rand, and with all the negative uh, consequences and re- uh, uh, results because of the weaker currency as well. But do not think it's only because of what is happening in China. China was probably only the trigger for this correction on the financial market. Now, are we at a stage where we're saying, um, you know, all, all the time it's, it's said that uh, when America coughs, um, the world sort of goes through a, a tremble. Now, is this the case with China? Is this what's happening? <laughs> you see, in a way, this is a case of China coughing, and that's certainly impacting on a global the commodity prices globally. But again, as I've said, it's not only the Chinese economy, it's certainly the world economy. Remember, the South African economy is a small, open economy, uh, and whatever happens somewhere in the, on the globe certainly affects everything else on the financial markets and certainly affecting the South African economy as well. What we've seen is a currency coming under tremendous pressure now, the rand at the stage trading at worse than 14 to the US dollar. This morning, it's about 1320 roundabout, uh, and the result of that will be uh, inflationary pressures in the South African economy. Uh, the reserve may be forced to increase interest rates, and we and you mentioned inflationary pressures, and the result of all of that is likely to be a weaker economic growth in the South African economy. This is something that we all need to be very concerned about. Now, Davi, what is better, a stronger rand or a weaker rand? Can you just go into that briefly? Yeah, well, in simple terms, if the rand weakens, then it should make it easier for us to export. Unfortunately, we do not have much to export. Our manufacturing industry is in uh, is in recession at the moment, and the mining industry we know is in a real mess. Um, a, a strong currency, on the other hand, will make it more difficult to export. The best that we can hope for, and the right thing to have, is actually a more a stable currency. Not a strong or a weak currency, a stable currency. A currency that's all over the place really disrupts the local economy, disrupts the financial markets, and leads to all sort of things like, for example, inflation. And maybe just another comment about the currency. Whenever the rand weakens, we as South Africans are getting poorer. So a weak currency is certainly not something that's good for us. Now, Davi, just uh, just to touch on the fundamental economic issues uh, with regards to government, what does government need to do to address these issues? There's, there's, there's much that government can do to address to make South Africa a less vulnerable economy. Uh, things like, for example, the fiscal accounts, is in, we're in real trouble there. The debt levels of government is simply far too high. Government spends too much money. Uh, the state is simply too big in South Africa. The state is undermining the South African economy. Look what is happening to Eskom as an example. And there are many, many other examples. So we need to put this, the, the civil service and the state in, in the, the broad definition of the state in a much more sound footing, and it must be managed much, much better. There then we have a number of uh, uh, policy issues, like, for example, labor legislation in South Africa. Labor legislation in South Africa. 
Um, and I think the list just goes on and the list goes on. And there are many other policy issues. We've got policy contradiction in South Africa. There are questions about political leadership in South Africa. So all we need to do if we want to make South Africa a more or less vulnerable country is just to manage this country well, manage it in a conservative way, and make sure that we do not create deficits and shortages like what we currently have in the economy. It's going to take some time. You need strong political leadership for that, and I'm a, but I'm afraid that's the only way that we can stabilize, stabilize this economy over time. Davi, let's look at uh, the rest of the continent. What other African currencies have been put under pressure um, in recent week over fears of a Chinese economic slowdown, as has South Africa's uh, RAND? Not only uh, African countries, the most emerging economy country uh, currencies are currently under pressure. The difference between South Africa and some other emerging economies is, uh, firstly, South Africa is a major commodity exporting economy, and that is one of the factors counting against us uh, at the moment. And the other factor is the fact that the South African economy and the financial markets are exceptionally well regulated and very much integrated with the rest of the world. So if you want to invest in South Africa, it's very easy to do that, but to, if you want to take your out of South Africa, that is also very easy to do that. And quite often that works against us, especially under circumstances that we're currently experiencing. We are certainly not alone in this. Many other emerging currencies are being affected as well, but South Africa is a little bit worse affected than many other emerging economies because of the factors such as I've just mentioned, but also because of the relative weakness of the South African domestic economy. Now, Davi, the challenges that are being that are faced by President Jacob Zuma's administration um, in reigniting investment and growth. Does this weaker rand and the instability and the few um, um, issues that you mentioned earlier does this make it more difficult for the South Africa's government to ensure that we have continued investment and growth in the country? Without a doubt. Now we have uh, we have all sort of plans. The National Development Plan is one of those plans. We've set out we have certain targets that we want to achieve in terms of job, so-called job creations. I say so-called job creation because jobs are not created. Jobs uh, is a, or job creation is a result of something else. We've got targets in terms of economic growth, as an example. I'm afraid these sort of targets are, are going to be extremely difficult to achieve now because of the recent weakness of the currency. But not only that, it would have been difficult even, even a, a month ago. It was clear that these sort of targets were probably not going to be achieved uh, unless we start doing something different. Now, I mentioned some of the issues that we have a problem with in South Africa, and I think the biggest single issue in South Africa is a civil service that needs to be managed much, much, much better. So I'm afraid these targets that we had, I'm afraid I guess we have to revisit those targets because it certainly will not be achieved. Now, Davi, before I let you go, I think in, at some point in 2011, we were sitting, the Rand dollar exchange was sitting at about um, six Rand or just below seven Rand. Do you think we'll ever get to that point again? Very unlikely. And uh, let me just confuse matters a little bit. The correct level for the exchange rate of the currency on a so-called purchasing power parity level, that's uh, in layman's terms, that's a so-called Big Mac approach, uh, is around about 7 Rand to the US dollar. That's where the Rand should be trading. In fact, the Rand is trading at uh, double that. And that simply is an indication of the huge, well, the lack of trust in the South African economy. I'm afraid it's very unlikely that we're going to go back to 7 Rand to the US dollar soon. Davi, <laughs> thank you so yeah. much for joining us, Davi. And that was Davi, you, Chief Economist at the Efficient Group, joining us on the line. 
Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kultanjoy Addis Ababa. Channel Africa, Blantyre. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Mwaigikonyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today's question, we ask you, do you think your government takes gay rights seriously? The United Nations Security Council has held a meeting focusing on gay rights where heart-rending testimonies from the victims who were persecuted and fled from Syria were heard. This is the first ever such meeting held by the UN over lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender LGBT rights. Speaking at the panel's briefing on Monday in New York, Subi Nahas, an openly gay refugee who fled Syria because of the conflict, said the homophobic brutalities against the sexual minorities continued in his homeland. Now we ask you this morning, do you think your government takes gay rights seriously? Give us your thoughts on email at infochannelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Water scarcity in North Africa and the Near East could have severe consequences for food production, something the UN Food and Agriculture Organization says will intensify with climate change. FAO is creating a database to collect and analyze satellite imagery that will help countries to better manage water resources so that farmers can produce more crop per drop. For more on this, UN Radio's Diane Penn spoke to Jip Hugavien of FAO's Land and Water Division. In North Africa and the Near East, water is very scarce. First of all, it is because uh, it, it's a very dry region, so there is not much water is falling. But on the other hand, side, there are also the many people are living in there. And if you need food, then you need water. And in these countries, a very big part of all the food is being produced under radiation since there is not enough rain. Uh, since there are all the time yeah, more people in these areas, uh, more food is needed and more water is needed. At the same time, also more water is needed for drinking water and for sanitation and also for, uh, for industry. And now give us an overview of this database that's being developed. We want to monitor how the water is being used in agriculture specifically. So we want to monitor how much food is being produced by the amount of water that is being withdrawn from the natural resource base. We do that with satellites, so we see how much water is being evaporated, and we compare that with the amount of water that is uh, falling down with the rain. So what we say is when there is more water evaporating than the rain is falling, then that should be done, then, then we need extra water. And that water comes from groundwater or comes from, uh, from surface water. When irrigation happens, well, what we need to do is 
produce as much food with the amount of water that we withdraw. This information, it's really very technical. It's scientific data, satellite imagery, what have you not. Exactly how does that information trickle down to the farmers? The database needs to be used on several layers. Uh, first of all, the global database needs to be used by, by countries themselves. Uh, soon, probably the UN will vote for the Sustainable Development Goals, and one of those, those Sustainable Development Goals is on making better use of, uh, of water. So we need to monitor the water use. In that sense, that part of the database is useful on the national level for policymakers. But at the same time, uh, of course, there are the farmers. They need to produce more crop uh, drops. And at that level, we need to give also information to, uh, to the farmers. And that we want to do by analyzing uh, the data and telling the, the farmers, for example, through uh, SMS messaging, saying, well, listen, uh, your field is not doing well while your neighbor is doing well better. Maybe you should water uh, your field. For- that was Jeppe Jugovin from the UN Food and Agriculture Organization's Land and Water Division speaking to UN Radio's Diane Penn. Our economics updates up next. South Africa's central bank will consider intervening in foreign exchange markets to ensure orderly market conditions. This after the rand slumped over 3% to an all-time low on concerns over China's economy. The South African Reserve Bank says the event of developments that threaten the orderly functioning of markets or that may have financial stability implications, it may consider becoming involved in foreign exchange markets to ensure orderly market conditions. Selling by foreign investors has driven Kenyan shares to weak lows as global markets fell. The Kenyan shilling also weakened mobile operator Safaricom, often the most heavily traded stock and usually popular with foreigners, dropped 4.3% to close at 14.35 shillings. The Nairobi All Share Index closed 2.2% lower at 146.40 points and the benchmark NSE 20 index slid 1.5% to 4.337.47. The Dow Jones Industrial Average has meanwhile ended a day of huge market volatility, 588 points in the red, after the opening bell saw a slide of over 1,000 points in the six minutes of trading. The 3.58% drop to 15,871 was accompanied by an almost 4% drop in the S&P 500, while Nasdaq shared 179 points to close at 4,526. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Following a 530 points fall on Friday, Monday's almost 600 points demise became the eighth worst one-day points loss in history and the worst daily points decline since August 2011. Stocks remain volatile as anxiety over uncertainty in the world's second largest economy, China, continues to grow. South Africa's Deputy President, Cyril Ramaphosa, has had to allay fears in the Japanese business sector over South Africa's energy crisis and labor market instability. Ramaphosa is on an official visit to the world's third largest economy to urge them to invest in the country. He is in Tokyo with a high-powered government and business delegation. Japanese businesses that we've met here are willing to come and invest in South Africa. They raised questions 
uh, about our energy challenges, about our labor market issues, and we gave them good answers even about BEE. We gave them good answers and they are satisfied with what we were able to articulate to them. For Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Our sports updates up next. Figile, what's what's uh, South Africa's rugby team mascot's name? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> Give us an update. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with um, cricket news. New Zealand's inform opening batsman Martin Guptil says they will be playing for nothing but a win in Wednesday's ODI series decider against the Proteas. Guptil steered the Black Caps to the eight-wicket win with an unbeaten 103 from 134 deliveries. Guptil's century came on the back of a series leveling half-century, 60 from 35 balls, in the second T20 international in Centurion. The 28-year-old senior statesman says he hopes his rich run of form continues in the decider. Yeah, it's been a bit of a funny year. Um, I, I didn't start it off too well. I think I had 150, 250s leading into the World Cup. I'm not sure really what happened, but it, it sort of turned around from there, and I was able to find a bit of rhythm and a bit of form and, and sort of carry that on. So and, uh, I'm just pretty pleased and, and pretty proud of the year that I've had so far. The opener, who has also had the responsibility of guiding young stars into the side on this tour as a senior, believes that a number of those young stars have put their hands up for the future of New Zealand's cricket. Yeah, I think so. You know, we've got five of our top line players, um, you know, being rested or, or injured for this tour, and depth that we've got, and the, the way that guys have actually stood up and, and played is, uh, you know, very pleasing for everyone involved in New Zealand cricket, and it's good for the future of our country. And in athletics, Cheriut Vivian Cheriut. He's a Kenyan that has claimed her fourth world title and a second gold medal in the 10,000 meter with victory in Beijing. There was a very little clues until the final 1,000 meter with most of the competitors staying close to each other for much of the race after a slow start. Cheriot held off the challenge of Ethiopia's Galet Berger in the closing stages to win in a time of 31 minutes, 41.31. It was a dramatic finish to the battle for bronze as Molly Huddle celebrated just before the line, which allowed Emily Infeld to sneak through and beat her American teammate to a spot on the podium. I feel that great because of uh, my comeback. Since 2012, I took part in Olympics and I, I took my break. And this is the champion. I was not in Moscow. And I want to say I'm really happy and I want to dedicate this gold medal to my son, Alan Kibrono, my husband and the family. And the 31-year-old took 2014 off to age. And then he took, that it took off to have a child. And she says nothing is impossible, including juggling, motherhood and training. Uh, I really enjoy to be a mother and I, I, I love to have my first goal. Everything is possible. 
that there is nothing which is impossible even if, if you go for a leave. Now with the Springboks, the assistant of the Springbok that Richard Lobsham says the focus of the Springboks training camp in Devon for this week will mainly be on conditioning and rugby-based training. The Springboks are currently in Devon ahead of the Springboks 31-man squad announcement for the Rugby World Cup that's starting on the 19th of September. Lobsha says they have had a great start to their preparations and there's a lot of excitement building up within the squad. Yeah, I think the focus is purely on, on, on coaching and uh, our conditioning. Uh, just want to make sure that we tick off the right boxes. So uh, a good start for us today. Um, there's a great vibe and great energy in the, in the camp. And uh, the guys are excited about the next two weeks. Yeah. So, as I said, there's a bit of both, uh, but the focus is purely on rugby. Uh, just to make sure that we tick off the right boxes. And uh, as I said, it was a great, great start for us today. And finally, the Namibian national rugby team has joined the Springboks in Deben this week as part of their preparation for the World Cup. And Lobsha says the interaction will be beneficial for both nations' preparations for the tournament. And that's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Lesotho's exile former prime minister to return home. UN Security Council expresses concern over attacks on gay people. And Zimbabwe gets multi-million dollar grant from African Development Bank. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagaza and Komuto Mopulane, technical producer Charles Moyo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Richard Bonner with a soul-soothing sho- song titled If Only. Thank you.